Hi, I'm Kat Chatfield. I'm a GP by training, but I'm currently a full-time clinical editor at the BMJ, um, and I co-lead um, our campaign around clinician wellbeing. Hi, everyone. Um, I'm Dal. And I'm a paediatric nephrologist by background and also an associate medical director for wellbeing, improvement and leadership at Great Ormond Street Hospital. Put this into context for us, first of all. Why is it especially important that we focus on well-being right now in June 2021? Kat, do you want to go first? Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much. And I feel like Dal's got a lot to say from the front line, so I'll try and give her a bit more of the bigger picture. Um, I think with COVID-19 and the pandemic, I think there's been a huge understanding of the stresses and strains that our health and social care workforces have been put under. And so that with that has come, I think, a more a really welcome focus on, on staff wellbeing and how we can support people through these incredibly challenging times. But that also comes on a background of, you know, a really long epidemic of, of burnout and um sort of challenges to staff wellbeing that, that was present way before COVID-19. Um, and a survey that the BMA did last year just right at the beginning of the pandemic showed that almost half of UK doctors were currently suffering from burnout at that point um, so this is a kind of long-standing problem that we've got um, with we're sort of failing to look after our, our frontline staff. I mean I completely agree with Kat that um, the pandemic has put the spotlight on well-being which is great um, but the issue is being here far longer um, burnout staff leaving prematurely, so consultants leaving earlier than they planned, junior doctors either leaving the profession or going abroad. These are all issues of a general sense of unhappiness, um, a general sense of not thriving, a general sense of not really feeling they're getting that true meaning um, to their work. So there's clearly a deeper-rooted issue here that we do need to pay attention to. Um, we all have dreams, aspirations of what our life as a consultant or what we're at the peak of our careers would look like. And perhaps what people having achieved, um, that sort of point where they're sort of consultants or autonomous um, practitioners, are experiencing is very different to what they imagined. And you can only tolerate that so far. And then if on top of that you're putting additional stresses and pressures on people, enough's enough and some of them leave or they try to endure it and then they get burnt out so um the problem is important and it's significant and it's not going away if anything it's going to get worse I think the thing to say as well is that you know we've both talked about the kind of impact on on clinicians and you know what it's like for individuals and teams to experience burnout and damage their well-being but but that has a knock-on effect on on patients and our healthcare systems so you know we know that Doctors who are burnt out have reduced levels of empathy and they're less able to connect with patients. Uh, we know that they have less engagement with their organisations and we know that, that these make the organisations less safe and they provide less high quality care. So I think, you know, it's tempting to sort of see this as an individual level problem and say, you know, what can we do to support individuals to help themselves and be resilient and manage their well-being? But, but it's really a kind of whole systems problem um, and we need to kind of look at it in that way. Completely agree with you, Kat. I mean, the impact on doctors spreads further afield to nurses, to our wider clinical teams, 
then to our managers, um, and as you say, our patients, and it's a, a causes a sort of a trail of devastation. And I think if we don't look at it systemically, then we are going to run into problems. And if we were already at, at a kind of crisis point before the pandemic in terms of well-being in the workforce, um, what has the pandemic brought with it that is adding to that? Are there any kind of particular issues you'd like to highlight in terms of who is being most affected in the health and care workforce right now, where the problem is most acute? I think the pandemic for me has brought good and bad. So in terms of good, um, it's created this sense of shared understanding of the level of stress where our lives in general are under at the moment. And so that's increased the, um, the compassion, the kindness that our patients are extending to us. Um, and also how much we're able to then say we are overwhelmed, we are stressed, we are stretched and we are human beings and actually we can't cope either. So it's allowed us to raise some vulnerabilities and also allowed us to show some compassion and kindness both ways. So I think that's been a really positive thing. I think the negative is that um, it's added to the level of stress, stretch, um, burden both for our families and for our um, our workforce. And so um, where they are already feeling they were enduring um, this space of healthcare, um, we've just added to that level of stress. And so actually it's, it's, it's brought it to a completely different level. Um, and so, um, yeah, I think it's a double-edged sword. Yeah, absolutely. Um, that's precisely the point that I wanted to make, Dal, this idea of the kind of positives and negatives. And I think to answer your question, Andre, about who is it most affected, I think it's quite hard to tell. But, you know, from from what we've heard kind of more anecdotally, I think um, it may have been particularly difficult for, for trainees who've seen their training programmes sort of hugely disrupted. Uh, a lot of trainees being asked to work in different areas. Uh, a lot of consultants and senior level staff across the health system being asked to work in different areas. So I think that's been a real challenge for people and that burden of kind of working outside of your comfort zone. I mean, in a, to some degree, everyone's been working outside of their comfort zone. But, you know, that additional pressure of working in a new team or a new clinical area and a new culture, I think that's been a challenge. Um, and then, you know, disruption to training opportunities, of course, for trainees. And then I think also, you know, there's just so many different groups who are affected in different ways. So, you know, we've had clinicians who've been vulnerable themselves with their own kind of clinical conditions who have had to sort of work out how to shield, had to deal with the kind of emotions that has sort of generated within them about you know what that means for the wider team you know sense of guilt that a lot of people have faced um for kind of not being able to perhaps see patients on the front lines when they knew that other colleagues were under huge amounts of pressure and stress so you know lots of really kind of complex ways and it that it's affected different groups of staff across the whole system um but then also to to dal's point um we had a really interesting chat with um Professor Neil Greenberg on our wellbeing podcast and, and he talks about a concept called post-traumatic growth which I'd never heard of and he was saying you know alongside post-traumatic stress which is obviously something we are worried about and worried that we're going to see in health and care staff um, there is this idea that actually you know this kind of trauma can 
hugely develop us and help us to grow and learn very rapidly and change very rapidly um and and that actually you know there can be a real positive to come out of it and as Dal said this real focus on talking about well-being seeing staff as human understanding that you know you cannot keep piling more and more pressure on people without something giving way I think that's been a really positive focus um and I think my concern now is you know how how will that continue into the future I think also um, we can notice now as physicians what we ask of our patients. We often ask our patients to change their lives at the whim of a phone call because results may be abnormal or they need to be admitted to hospital for acute care and families' lives disrupted. These are all situations that we are now all experiencing ourselves as a result of COVID where we lost control of our own lives. We have very little autonomy about what happens in our day-to-day. So in some ways, it's really given us a real um, lens to see what our patients are having to attend to every day. Um, And I think that has certainly really increased the understanding between our patients and our staff. Um, But as Kat says, I hope that what we will not do is just focus on the disease state of um, mental health disease but we also need to think about how do we take people from the neutral state to that state of positive state of wellness and well-being so don't want to just diagnose and treat mental health disease but we want to take people to that space of thriving of happiness of of really um, good sense of wellness and so I think we now have to raise the bar of what we want. Give us an example of how you're doing this work at Great Ormond Street, Dal, and tell us, yeah, how how that works across your organisation. So, yeah, so we initially focused on COVID, but with COVID, then also what came out was um, staff talking about their vulnerabilities in everyday work and not wanting to tolerate or accept that they weren't thriving, not wanting to accept that they were feeling overwhelmed, not wanting to accept that their jobs may be very stressful and it's okay for them to ask for help. And so what we've really done is start to get them to start normalising their lives, their working lives, and normalise the stress that they place on themselves every day, to start thinking of strategies that they can use themselves for their own self-care and the team's self-care. And it's really about asking them to extend their expectations of themselves and of their teams not just to we're not burnt out and we're not unhappy, to we are really thriving and we are really positive and we are really enjoying our lives and really feeling fulfilled by our work and really feeling that um, we're in this state of wellness and happiness. So we really are starting to raise the bar. We're saying don't accept just to be in a neutral state. See how far you can go up from neutral to that really positive state. I mean, that sounds wonderful in, in theory, but I guess when people are so overworked and uh, under pressure and stressed, how do you st- even start to have these conversations about this stuff, which I suppose has a kind of very sort of fluffy aura around it, if you get what I mean? Absolutely. And the fluffy, soft, touchy-feely stuff hasn't worked for everyone. We absolutely did need to adapt the way we introduce these concepts and ideas to different teams. I think 
what's really important is allowing people to talk about their experiences, allow them to vent and to really get things off their chest and to really talk about their narrative and to acknowledge it. Acknowledge that that narrative is true, acknowledge that life is stressful and acknowledge and for them to hear other people's stories and feel that they're not alone in these experiences. And then from that, what small steps can we take to move slightly from that space to the direction of trouble that we're hoping for, which is that space of wellness. See, it's not going to happen overnight, but let's start going on a journey to start slowly and slowly and slowly taking small steps to move further and further and further to that space of thriving and wellness. Um, we've started to talk about um, producing a wellbeing indicator, which we ask our consultants to complete before they have their appraisals. So they have a discussion in their appraisals about a life-work balance as opposed to just, um, just focusing on work. And we are sometimes the victims of our own success or victims of our own um, lack of wellness, where we are constantly taking on work and burden ourselves with more and more work. It's always the same people who will volunteer for the work. And sometimes we are doing this to ourselves. We have to take some responsibility for what we're doing to ourselves. And I think we have to get people to start focusing on self-care and the responsibility for that self-care. We've also started to um, look at the hospital processes and structures to ensure that we are reducing the demand on our staff. So how are we organising our work? How are we organising our processes that, you know, increase the burden rather than decrease the burden? So can we shift the way we design our work processes, the way we demand um, work of our staff? So we started a very simple um, project where we asked staff to consider what are you doing or asking of your colleagues every day, which may be increasing their, their workload, which is not necessary. So what small gift can you give your colleagues that they, you can ask them not to do today? So it's just simple things like that where we can be creative, have fun, but really take, um, really sort of get people to focus on the demands on themselves, the demand on others, and what can we do to adjust that? And how do you make sure that that kind of approach is accessible to and gets buy-in from everyone in the organisation, from the senior consultant to the cleaner? So we engage the senior consultants, the exec team, all the way down to the cleaners. So we did generic stuff and we did targeted interventions where we spoke to the cleaners, we spoke to the mortuary staff, we spoke to the porters, you know, we spoke to everyone we possibly could so that people knew that this well-being business is not just for the consultants and the clinical staff, but it's for every staff member. Um, the chief exec talks about well-being at, his, at our um, weekly um, big brief and so well-being features every week on that. So we are making sure that the profile of well-being isn't just a transient thing, but it's there and it's talked about all the time. Let's talk about other organisations who are doing other work. And Kat, you led a discussion on workforce well-being at the recent Quality 2021 conference just a couple of weeks ago. Can, can you just summarise for us what you covered at that session and who came along and kind of what you concluded, if anything. Sure, absolutely. So so that was very much an open discussion session where we um, asked participants to share their experiences of, of well-being. 
initiatives that had happened during COVID and what they thought the potential future impacts might be on on their workforce and what they'd like to see going forward. Um, I think really just echoed a lot of what Dal said already. I think we had attendees from a, a wide variety of organisations, um, mainly European, but some uh, in Asia as well. I think people felt that there had been a really welcome focus on wellbeing during the pandemic. And I think some really innovative kind of ideas, like, you know, teams kind of doing dances together and things that would never have happened in the kind of pre-COVID world, like a real kind of um, willingness to embrace um, kind of silliness and and sort of uh, to find uh, as Dal said not just kind of surviving at work but a real kind of thriving and, and joy um, I don't think there were any particular themes apart from this culture of of openness I think was really really important this just kind of willingness to to start having these small conversations which say you know how are you but you know how are you really um, what's going on for you and your narrative, not just at work, but as Dal said, outside of work, you know, looking at at the staff member as a whole person and work as just a part of their narrative. I think that was very important to people. Um, and, and just this kind of sense of um, supporting each other. I think a lot of people found their time during COVID to be quite purposeful. Um, they felt connected to, to their values and why they went into health or social care in the first place. Uh, and I think some of them were, were really worried about the erosion of that kind of going forward as as it you know they saw a real kind of focus on picking up all of this huge burden of elective work um that that had been sort of slightly put aside and um and losing that real kind of clarity and focus of what are we doing you know we're managing covid and we're preventing people dying to something that was a lot more diffuse and harder to articulate so i think having conversations that really connect that sense of purpose and, and value in work is going to be really important to keep that going in the future um so yeah a, a big diversity of things and I guess another sort of anxiety is around the kind of inquiry into COVID and, and what's happened in the health system and some real concern that you know will people now kind of withdraw that level of support and that understanding that that Dal mentioned patients under sort of extending to staff that real empathy both between staff for what they ask patients to do and patients for, for what staff go through at, at work and the kind of everyday stresses that everyone working in healthcare experience um so yeah sort of a range of shared experiences but definitely some anxieties for the future do you think the pandemic in some ways has been helpful for people working in workforce well-being how, how has it kind of impacted on the work that was already going on i think for me gosh um it's really accelerated the the pace of work and well-being I mean, I'm familiar with the literature on burnout, but I just ignored it, as did many of my colleagues. We just thought we were we were coping, we were fine. It wasn't great, but actually what's great and what's normal? You know, you just didn't know what how to compare and contrast your own existence with other people's existence. Um, COVID just allowed us access to different languages and different narratives, and I think that's been really helpful. Um, so... Yeah, true sense of real acceleration of pace for me. Yeah, it's absolutely the same for us. So my colleague, Abby Rimmer and I, we were sort of tasked with co-leading kind of the BMJ's campaign on well-being 
before the pandemic and and that really consisted of sort of trying to commission articles around this topic and and we sort of launched a campaign around um you know getting people um better spaces at work to have their breaks and to take their breaks you know in called take your take a break you know not very imaginative but you know that that was what we were working on and then suddenly you know covid hit and that that campaign was put out of business in one fell sweep you know suddenly all of these organizations that we've been really struggling to engage with and to get them to sign up to various initiatives like the BMA charter about kind of sort of break spaces you know suddenly overnight all of these spaces were being created for staff to rest or talk or unwind or all of those things and this kind of real massive acceleration of change that had been like kind of bashing your head against a brick wall before so that was fascinating um, and then I think also um, we we thought actually perhaps we should start kind of highlighting this work more. So Abby and I started doing a, a podcast right at the beginning of COVID back in March 2020, you know, and suddenly the audience for that grew and grew really rapidly. Um, and we were sort of just able to to keep this work right at the forefront of what we were doing rather than something that we had to kind of fit in, um, you know, something we knew was important. We kind of had to fit it in sort of after all the other work. So I think that sort of focus, that prominence and that pace of change has, has definitely been really positive, I think. There's a tension, isn't there, here? Because the thing that we're trying to improve is, is something which is, you know, incredibly significant and entrenched and you know it, it it might be that working in the health service traumatizes you or leads to horrific burnout where you think about taking your own life you know so it's a really serious problem that was very serious before the pandemic and for me the tension is because in many ways the solution to this that you're talking about it's obviously a kind of cultural solution, but it's also a solution which is kind of very fluffy. You know, it's about, um, you know, the things that people cite as examples are often things like, you know, mindfulness or dance or yoga or whatever it might be. And that, that there's obviously a big tension there because you're talking about a very serious problem and specific examples that feel quite light. I mean, respectfully, I disagree. <laughs> I think it's, I think what we focus on so far is perhaps the softer, fluffy stuff, which is the quick wins. Um, but things that are incredibly important and was um, feasible and easy to achieve when people's norms or lives had changed so dramatically. So focusing on how to manage their stress and anxiety was an obvious way to start. But there's some really hard stuff that needs to be um, thought about now. So what's left of is those wicked problems. We've we've got um, clinical staff are struggling with their identities, their roles. What's the role of the nurse in the future? What's the role of the doctor in the future? Especially with digital um, coming along and perhaps replacing some of the functions that we traditionally hold with doctors and nurses. There's some really big issues about the fact that the demand on healthcare is going to continue to rise, but the workforce numbers remain the same or they're dropping. So there's some really difficult issues that need tackling. And those difficult issues need difficult conversations with people at the top and also people at the bottom. And I think um, hopefully the fact that well-being is something now that's not going to be swept away under the carpet 
we can start having those really meaningful, difficult conversations and start planning about how are we going to approach these really entrenched problems, which are only going to get worse. And absolutely, I completely agree, Dal. There are some really huge system problems, particularly demand and, and workforce kind of retention. But I think I don't want to get, give the impression, Andre, that, you know, what we're suggesting is that if you have a serious mental health problem that leads you to think of taking your own life, that, you know, mindfulness and yoga is going to fix it. I mean, that's absolutely not what we're trying to say. I think we're trying to say that there is a huge spectrum of, that you can be on, you know, in your working life or your personal life or both, you know, and you can be, as um, Dal said, in this neutral state where you're fine, you're not burnt out, but you're not thriving. Um and you can hopefully move people towards the more thriving state through looking at kind of their work patterns, the amount of control they have over their work, um, their their shifts, the amount of control they have over demand, the amount of kind of autonomy they have to pursue things at work that particularly stimulate them or they enjoy you know the kind of balance of the content of what they're doing at work so you know you can move people in that way and then you can move people towards towards better well-being through small interventions like perhaps mindfulness perhaps yoga and you can't be prescriptive with those but you do have to say to people you know looking after your your well-being and your mental health is just like looking after your physical health you know you have to kind of keep it you know keep working at it on a regular basis in small ways in order to maintain it you know you can't expect just to ignore it and it will stay at the same level as it was if you you know don't do anything so I think you know that fluffy stuff is is not that fluffy however on the other end of the spectrum there are people who who become really significantly ill from their work Um, and that might be burnout it might be anxiety it might be depression you know there are people who will have diagnosed mental health problems that they don't feel happy talking about at work and who may you know that might be affecting their ability to do their jobs or people with underdiagnosed mental health problems that will present you know while while they're in their professional lives so there is this huge spectrum and for people who have these mental health problems they need you know proper support they need the gps they need programs like the practitioner health program they need occupational health they need really robust kind of work systems um but there is this huge other group of people who who may be at risk of traveling down that spectrum spectrum and and these are the kind of staff members that we we really need to focus on and not just forget about them in favor of the really more seriously unwell staff I wondered what you thought about how this topic needs to be moved forward at conferences and you know other events over the coming year or two let's say how would you like workforce well-being to be covered at future events what do you think would have the most impact to inspire people to go back to their organizations to make change I think it's a combination of things really I think as Dal pointed out with talking about the work they're doing at gosh to engage people like different people respond to different things so you know um I personally find kind of narrative and story and personal experiences really inspiring so you know some of the best conversations that we've had for me on our podcast have been when people have come on and talked really really openly about their own experiences and the challenges um and the kind of permission that's given other people to then sort of open up and to sort of shift that taboo and and 
make that cultural intervention. So I think there is something about story and narrative as a cultural intervention. But then equally, there's there's this real point that a lot of this is is not the soft stuff. It is the hard stuff. And even if it is the soft stuff, you know, there is really good evidence about organisational culture and about staff engagement and the impact that has on patient safety. And, and I think, you know, really presenting people with the data that says, look, if you don't take care of staff wellbeing, this is what happens. This, These are the risks to your patients. These are the risks to your organisations. And I think a, a really kind of more robust discussion of the science around this because you know we might be hesitant in healthcare at you know perhaps taking data that may be more from the social sciences rather than kind of the biomedical sciences but the evidence is there and it's real and it's robust so I'd like to see more discussion and presentation of that that evidence um in in the conferences going forward. Thank you Kat I mean I think for me it'd be great if well-being almost has this platform of its own so we had research many decades ago then quality improvement came along and safety care its own platform i'd love well-being to have that same level of um attention being paid to it um at conferences it'd be great to have those individual stories as kat says to be able to then allow us to normalize to benchmark my experience versus somebody else's experiences and to really share those lived experiences um because i think it's really important and um, for us all to continue to um, to air those narratives, um, both for ourselves, so that we feel we're part of this community and we're in it together, and there's some, um, you don't feel then isolating those experiences, and hopefully feel more inclined to talk about your own experiences. I think it'd be great to have conferences, team-based interventions, you know, so that's some of that evidence base, um, some of that stuff that's worked because I think many of us would love to be activated on how to help ourselves and others on their well-being. Um, I'd love to put my discretionary effort into well-being as opposed to perhaps something else. It'd be, it'd be another option for me as a physician to, um, to think about. And so the final part for me is um, at conferences to talk about the work we're doing at system level, at regional or national levels, and to really start having some of those difficult conversations and really get people to start discussing how we're going to overcome some of these really difficult challenges. Mm-hmm.